Welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hey, E.K. Wimmer. I'm Mariah Rose. <laughs> okay. Well, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Pretty good. You had a twinkle of deception in your eye, so... Oh, you thought I was going to reveal your, your true name? Yeah. Elderberry Kelp. <laughs> it's not Elderberry Kelp. Yes, your parents were hippies. Okay, well, no, they definitely were not hippies. They were <laughs> total squares. <laughs> All right. Well, you're listening to Laser Graves, a podcast about the 80s. And mm-hmm. this week we are coming at you with strong, full-blown 80s episodes. Yep. So buckle in. But... Before we get started, I have an update from last week when we did the Society episode. And remember Mm -hmm. how I said I wrote Brian Usna, the director, about his very first experimental film in 1978 that Mm -hmm. he did? Yeah. I had asked him if it ever got released. If so, we wanted to see it. Uh, He wrote me back. He did? (laughs) And uh, he's got a great sense of humor, said... That is one film that should never see the light of day. Aww, <laughs> so no. Boo. The update, everybody, is it has not and will not be released. Oh, okay. There you go. Well, whatever. All right. Well, on to other news. Thrift store finds. What do you got this week? I just made one outing because we're still quarantined for, yep. you know, the 9,000th month. But I did go and I found a cool, like, vintage tiki, like, wooden tiki cup. Uh-huh. Uh, but it was wide mouth because I wanted to use it to store paintbrushes because right. I just needed a bigger one. I didn't look inside because I didn't plan to drink out of it. And then when we came home, I realized it's real gross inside. So I've been cleaning it for about 24 hours now. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. If that tiki mug could talk. I don't want to hear what it has to say. <laughs> what did you find? <laughs> I found a couple DVDs. I found the... Um, Friday the 13th box set of all eight films. And even though I have them all on VHS, I thought, well, I mean, for $2, why wouldn't I grab that? And I found the post-apocalyptic film Doomsday, which we haven't seen since it came out. So Uh that was cool. And then I found a Lou Reed record. That was a surprise. Lucky find. Yeah, pretty good, actually. I only went out once and I found them all. So I think that's a good score. Hashtag winning. (laughs) Tiger blood. Okay, everybody. Well, get ready, because this is an event episode. We haven't done one since... What was the last one we did? I don't know. Like, why don't you go back and look in our, our uh, previous episodes? Just listen to them all and report back to us. Yeah, I can't even think of... Oh, Pee-wee. I bet it was Pee-wee. Does he count as an event? Well, it was more like a history of... The man, the myth, the legend, <laughs> the event. Well, there is one event. <laughs> Oh, go listen to it. Yeah, there you go. After there, this. There's our teaser plug. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, this week we are going to be covering the story of Dun Dun Dun, Gem, and the Hologram. Yes. Gem is truly outrageous. Truly, truly, truly outrageous. She's Gem, the most glamorous rock star ever. She's also Jerrica, the president of Starlight Music. But only her friends, the holograms, Kimber, Aja, and Shayna, know that Jerrica is also Jim. But we're the misfits. Our songs are bitter. We are the misfits. The misfits. And we're gonna get her. Jim, truly outrageous. And they're each sold separately from Hasbro. Jim! Did you watch Jim uh, as you were growing up, like, secretly? 
I don't think I did. I mean, I knew who Jem was because I thought she looked super cool. Heck yeah. But I don't think it was until I met you that I realized, oh, okay, so this this chick's obsessed with Jem. Every girl my age was. Yeah. And then we watched a few episodes together one time. And mm-hmm. then over the years I've watched it. We've never owned the tapes or the box set. Well, they're or available. Yeah, they're totally available. But then once... We got it on, um, what what did it come out on? Like Amazon or something? One of those, one uh, some streaming platform. I totally used our kids as an excuse to watch the series and loved it. So no, I'm, I mean, I've seen it over the years, but I didn't grow up with it. Well, to kind of get you up to speed, like on my level, I'm going (laughs) to get on my level. This is going to (laughs) be, I'll give you kind of a rundown of the plot. So as you know, Jerrica Benton inherits half of a what would you call it like a music recording studio but yes yeah all in one so she inherits half of starlight music after the death of her father the other half is owned by a real bad guy that we'll get to in a bit her dad also real casually left her a supercomputer named Synergy. Yeah, Synergy's awesome. She's like a synthesizer with a bunch of keytars attached to her and yeah. then can manifest into this uh, super robot babe looking chick. You know, I've often wondered, should I go as Gem or Synergy for Halloween? Uh-huh. And I think I want to go as Synergy more. Okay. Well, I, no, now that I said that, I'm backtracking. Body suck. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she learns that this supercomputer, Synergy, is able to project holog- holograms via these rad star earrings. Yeah, they are really cool. And the, the earrings range is shocking. Uh, it can, like cover entire rooms and people with imaginary clothes. You just have to hop on board and accept that these magic earrings can project holograms. And so her dad basically left her set up to be a pop star. Why this was unveiled after his death is never clarified. But Jerrica is now able to become Jem, the supreme pop star. There's uh, Jem Rolls Royce and all of her friends. Oh, what's that called? The Rock and Roadster? Yes. Oh, yes, yeah, that's good. pretty cool. And so all of her friends make bands, and they're actually family. So the Holograms, the backup band, is Jerrica's sister, Kimber. And Kimber is the main songwriter of the band. She's like red haired and a little sassy. And <laughs> well, it's because she's always in Jem's shadow. Yeah. So she has the personality. There's Aja, who is the guitarist, and Shayna plays the synth drums. Aja and Shayna are uh, like childhood friends, but possibly also, I think there are two different storylines where they're adopted foster sisters. Mm hmm. But it's kind of like they stay separate and aren't really family. It's weird. Yeah. It's uncomfortable. Uh, And Shayna actually briefly leaves the group in this whole subplot where she pursues a career in fashion. Okay. Which also helps to explain why Jem and the holograms are so super fashionable, which is a really important part of this. Oh, yeah. This is like a major element of Jem and the holograms is the fashion. Yeah, absolutely. So when Shayna goes off, we get a new character named Carmen Rhea Alonzo, and she's also a band member. There's a whole storyline about that. The holograms are all aware of Jem's secret identity, the existence of synergy, etc. And Rhea actually finds out before, so they're just like, now you're one of us, yeah. essentially. Uh, the holograms have two rival bands. 
And this is over the whole course of this series. The The main rival band is the Misfits. Mm-hmm. Not the Misfits you're thinking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although there's been some fun like fan art that superimposes oh, yeah. them as the Misfits. The Misfits are made up of the singer Pizzazz, the guitarist Roxy, and the sweet kind of dumb guitar player Stormer, yeah. who's one of my personal favorites. <laughs> they also later bring on a British saxophonist oh. named Jetta. Yeah, boy, do they. <laughs> the other rival band is called the Stingers, and they don't actually come on until the third season when they cause disruptions for both groups. So both the Misfits and Jim and the Holograms. And um, Eric Raymond, he ends up losing the other half of starlight he now was, eric raymond's the one that you had mentioned earlier yes. is the, the the other co-owner of this record company of starlight Re- or starlight music but he loses it in a battle of the band situation mm-hmm. and so he starts actually i think two different um one is misfits music it's like his label and one is the stinger sound Okay. So he's wreaking havoc. He's just the bad guy, always putting Jem and the holograms in peril as he tries to undermine them. Generally, the episodes are about Jerrica trying to maintain a double life as the uh, leader of Starlight Music. But she also, and we haven't mentioned it up till this point, runs a foster home. Yeah. Like, no big deal. She's got, she's running a biz, like a full company. She's secretly a pop star and also runs a foster home. Yeah. It was this classic kind of comic book scenario where there's a secret identity. It's just that her secret identity is uh, pretty busy. I mean, both sides are are a full-time job, for she sure. She is burning the candle at both ends, <laughs> yeah. for sure. And then uh, the misfits basically just make trouble trying to over like beat out Jem. They're not really bad they're just kind of bratty really they're fun though they always have this like leopard print and neon colors and they're always just trying to like undermine all of gem and the holograms efforts yeah absolutely oh and we do need to mention rio rio's the purple-haired babe boyfriend of jerica but when Jem comes on the scene, he is inexplicably attracted to Jem too, but he's apparently too dense to figure out that she has the exact same face as his already girlfriend. <laughs> and, and body and everything. Yep. And they just have a love triangle happening. And then later in the series, the lead singer of the Stingers, Riot, comes in and throws more chaos into this love triangle. Yeah, this was very intentional too. The whole idea of creating almost like a, ch- a children's show soap opera in a way Mm -hmm. to make it different than all the other cartoons that were coming out at the time. So it had a little bit more depth. It was all character driven. Yes, absolutely. And in the final episode of the series, the Misfits and Jem declare a truce. Oh, that's sweet. Yep. When one of the foster girls in Starlight House is claimed by her long lost father, Jem finds the dad and the holograms help in. Uh, help find Riot's father as well. It's lots of family reunions and Jim solves all the problems at the end. Wow, it's quite an adventure. (laughs) It's so much fun. It is really fun. And we'll talk about the different elements within each episode that made Jim not just... Uh, you know, a cartoon with cool fashion, but there was so much more to it. Yes. So 
now that there's this overview of what Jim and the holograms uh-huh. was, now's the time to really dig into how this all came to be, because it really was unlike anything that had been seen before and since, really. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it made a huge impact in pop culture. Jim and the holograms ran from 85 to 88. That was the whole duration. So that's it. I mean, that, it was a very short-lived show yes. to make such a big impact. But the concept was started by this advertising executive named Bill Sanders. And then he had a friend who was an art director named Joe Highland. And then Joe's wife, Barbara Highland, was a writer. And the three of them used to hang out. They ended up moving into a boathouse in Florida and just kind of coming up with different new ideas for shows. <laughs> well, they were all working in the business all already. I actually think Joe was working for Hasbro already. Mm. I could be wrong. But they're sitting there in Florida, and they come up with this concept, characters, fashion, toys, and everything for a brand new idea. The whole point being to rival Barbie, who had the monopoly on dolls. Mm -hmm. And they all thought Barbie was just boring as hell. So let's do something to rival Barbie that's also interesting and not just kind of you know surface level yeah nothing to offer cool and like cutting edge too yeah and the the thing they thought of because all the rage at the moment was mtv and rock mm-hmm. music was let's make a rock and roll barbie that hadn't been done yet this is very important to note for future um information we're yeah. about to dive into so they cooked up this singer who was named M, not Jem, just the letter M. And this was to be kind of more, it could stand for music, could be like MTV. It was just this mm. mysterious M figure who was this rock and roller, totally outrageous fashion, mm. which was already there at the very beginning and a backup band that used a hologram. So all these basic elements were in place when they were conceptualizing this story. Then what they did was they approached Hasbro who was a toy line, but also was responsible for massive cartoons at the time, like G.I. Joe, My Little Pony, Transformers. So they were the the big ones. And the three of them came to Hasbro with this idea for M, uh, this rock and roller, and said, let's do this as a toy line. And they loved it. Hasbro loved it. But because... Hasbro was already under fire, as was everybody at this time, for making cartoons just to pitch toys. Yeah, their cartoons are basically like 20-minute commercials. Yeah, that's all they were. So they wanted to avoid that controversy because they were already dealing with Mm -hmm. it. And what they did was they said, well, how about instead we create the cartoon first? We roll that out for like six months Uh. and then we'll surprise everybody with the dolls and they'll think that it was a result of the success. Right at Christmas time, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. So this was all really well thought out. So after that idea was pitched and agreed to, Hasbro's ad agency reached out to a really successful writer at the time uh, working for Marvel Productions named Christy Marks. So... Christy Marks has since, you know, become a very popular name in the cartoon and comic world. But at the time, they approached her. They sent her prototype, like Polaroids of the dolls that they were developing, which are really cool to see. They all had different names at the time, but they all had the neon colors and leopard print and Mm -hmm. uh, bright wigs and stuff like that to get the basic looks. And then they provided her with the starting points of those general elements that we had talked about, you know, a hologram rock star lifestyle, secret identity. Yeah. And that's what was presented to Christy Marks. I think 
before we go on yeah. to this crazy story, we should spend some time on Christy Marks herself because yeah. she was a really fascinating character and I think the absolute right person to make this come to life in a way that probably wouldn't have happened if anybody else had taken it on. So Christy Marks had started out with a love for comics as a kid. She loved them, mm-hmm. read them all the time. But one thing, and this is going to be kind of a through line in her whole biography, is she knew that there was no real representation of women in comics. Mm-hmm. And one of the funny things is I was watching a documentary with her and she still had her original comics that she owned when she was a kid. Aww. And in the like Batman comics, she would take a ballpoint pen and draw on Robin uh, a skirt, boobs, and long hair and make him into a female superhero to help Batman out oh, wow. so that she could see the representation that was missing. And I think that's really forward thinking as a kid. Yeah. But also, once she was given the opportunity, this was going to come back in. Now, she hadn't planned on getting into comics, but she loved writing stories. She loved drawing, all that yeah. kind of stuff. What had happened, though, was one day she met Roy Thomas, editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics. I'm not quite sure how this meeting happened. I think it was just a party, like they were all mingling. And she came to him with this idea that she had developed of telling the story of Conan the Barbarian for an issue, but from the perspective of one of the female characters, which had never been done because they were just disposable, like, sex objects in Conan. And he really liked that idea. It was something that had, you know, never even been pitched. So she was hired on, wrote the episode, and then started to work with them on some comics. Cool. And quickly rose up as like an up-and-coming star that had great ideas, really clever. And it wasn't long until she was actually hired on to their company, uh, a sister company named Marvel Productions, Mm -hmm. which was responsible for all the cartoon elements of Marvel Comics. Right. So that cartoon division, which was happening in the early 80s, took on Christy Marks as one of their writers, and she quickly became one of the kind of lead writers. One of the first projects she worked on was the Fantastic Four, and then Spider-Man, and the big thing that she contributed to Spider-Man was developing this female superhero, Firestar, which was really cool. So that was kind of her claim to fame. And then, of course, word got around that she was this big deal, And then she was brought on to do the G.I. Joe series as Mm -hmm. one of the lead writers for that. Again, she also took a huge interest in the female characters, especially the character Scarlet. So for you G.I. Joe fans out there, that was that was her contribution was developing this whole backstory of instead of just making her this tag along, she's like comes from this kung fu background where, you know, all of her family does martial arts and stuff like that. You know, I watched... I watched G.I. Joe's as a kid, and she was the only interesting character to me. I didn't care about any of the other stuff, and I was so happy to see a female character. I think that's really important, and I think that that's what also kept her getting jobs, was that she was bringing an aspect to all of these TV shows that was missing with all the male writers around her. So that's where we're at in her life, is right in the thick of G.I. Joe, when Hasbro approaches her about taking on Gem and the Holograms. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's a pretty interesting story to think about. She loved the idea. She did agree to do it. Uh, She took this very seriously in developing the whole concept of the holograms and stuff like that. So she started researching, like hardcore researching the current status of scientific technology and holograms and all this, which is hilarious when you watch the cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. But 
This is important because a little known fact is that all the last names to the lead characters of Gem and the Holograms are the last names of the leading scientists in holographic studies at the oh, time. Oh, I didn't know that. Benton was the yeah. lead scientist. Leith and Elmsford, those are all uh, the name, the last names of the scientists, which oh, are the last names of the yeah. hologram characters. Yeah, interesting. Now, there was one big problem is that Gem and the Holograms was not an action show. It wasn't superheroes. So she was told to try and keep the interest of boys because this wasn't a girl's show. This was a show for everybody. Mm -hmm. There had to be action. So that's why you get all these car chases and explosions and stuff like that is to try and balance out the drama for the girls with the action for the little boys. The 80s are so behind the times. Even then, girls need what? Drama? Boys need action? That's so annoying. Okay. And the other side of this was if she's not a superhero, which is what Christie's background was in developing, how could she make her powerful and strong? And that's where she really kind of leaned into this idea of let's make her this strong executive, music executive. Also, her other identity is being a strong leader of this house for, you know, runaway youths or mm-hmm. whatever. And it was an interesting concept that was pretty forward thinking was, and she said this in her interviews, was she doesn't have to be this ass-kicking superhero to be a strong female character. She can just be in control of her own career mm-hmm. and her own life, and that depicts a strong female character, yeah. too. I thought that was neat. Another interesting element in the whole development of Gem and the Holograms was that she wanted all races to be depicted. Yes. And this was really ahead of its time and became one of the major things that kids latched onto absolutely was that gem and the holograms and all the other characters around them were of all ethnicities they weren't just a bunch of white people running around yeah that was huge it was huge and i thought that was really smart yes because kids can see themselves and their friends and their families absolutely yep and then the other final little element was that m at the last minute had to be changed because they realized well mattel that puts out barbie yeah. <laughs> that's probably not a good idea. So they switched it over to Gem, and that's when we got Gem and the Holograms. And keep in mind that that cartoon, all of this that we're talking about, was developed just to promote a toy line that they had already conceptualized. Yep. So the cartoon was created as 15 short cartoons. They mm-hmm. were seven minutes each, and they would air on Super Sunday and Super Saturday shows, which were like variety sampler plate shows. Yeah, I remember those. And it was a way for Hasbro to kind of test out their new concepts mm-hmm. and see which ones stuck. And Gem and the Holograms took off right of away. It was huge. I don't know if you ever saw these. These ran probably not. I don't know. The very first one started on May 4th, 1985. I don't know. I don't know if I would have seen them, but I do remember those samplers from that time. Right. And it, like I said, took off. And then the show episode officially started episode one, October 6th, 1985, which was the pilot was just a re, it was just re-showing what they had already done. Mm -hmm. And... Then another little fun side story is for VHS collectors out there, kids of the 80s, there was a TV movie called Truly Outrageous in 1986, but all that is, is the first 15 episodes put into one 90-minute film. Yeah, yeah. And that is it. Christy Marks wrote 23 of the 65 episodes. Wow. And Gem and the Holograms, before the toy line had even been launched, was off to the races and killing it. Yes. So when you watch this... 
the animation style seems very distinctly not American, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Absolutely something that I always picked up on because it's very different than what was happening in the United States. And that's because Toei Animation Company, and trust me, I have looked up how to pronounce it. It's T-O-E-I, and it's a thousand different ways. So <laughs> I don't speak Japanese, just deal with that. They're a major Japanese animation studio who produced animated series like Dragon Ball Z and Sailor Moon. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And Transformers. Yeah. Oh, well, that makes sense. So there would be this partnership already pre-existing. Yeah. And it's interesting because you realize how large in scope a production like this is from the development of the concept to all of the individuals involved. It's huge, huge, yeah. huge. So the studio itself was founded in 1948 as Japan Animated Films, and they have big names under their belt, like Miyazaki, Takahata, Mori, Matsumoto, and Kotabi. They've all worked with this company. Uh, Toei is a shareholder in the Animax with uh, other animation studios, so it's not like just one group. It's a huge umbrella. So they work with production companies like Sunrise, TMS Entertainment, uh, Nihon Ad Systems. In addition to producing anime for release in Japan, they began providing animation to American films and television series during the 60s, but really ramping it up in the 80s. So when you think of 80s animation film or animated series, you're probably thinking of of their work. Yeah, that would make sense. Mm -hmm. And it does start to have a really, what's funny is you were saying it didn't look American, but it looks 80s. And I think that's, oh, yeah. the, that's the story is 80s cartoons definitely started to take on that look. Yeah. And they have more of a um, comic book style, I yeah. would say, where they have a more realistic human anatomy. Of course, don't laugh when I say realistic and comic <laughs> with regard to human anatomy. But I think that a lot of times prior to that, animation was real, like, I don't know, round characters. They weren't, they were more like Peanuts characters as opposed yeah, to... like Popeye or something. Yeah, as opposed to something more, more based in realism. But also involved in production was AKOM, which, for, which stands for Animation Korean Movies. And that was begun in 1985. And they have gone on to be involved in the production of The Simpsons, My Little Pony, Land Before Time, X-Men, Transformers, Animaniacs, and just so many more. It does seem like there's a handful of animation studios, but they're all powerhouses. Like once they know what they're doing, they do it really well. Yeah, absolutely. And this is just the animation. This isn't the writing. This isn't the music. Right. This is just animating. Well, in addition to the animation, like you said, the music is, that's Gem and the Holograms. That's what yeah. separates this TV series from anything else. This is also what brings in, I think, the fun for both genders, because as a boy, even as a grown man, I, it's not like being a, a brony or something. Gem is just a cool TV show. Mm -hmm. And it's because it's fun. It is absolutely 80s. I think just as boys could be fans of Madonna and Cyndi Lauper, they could be fans of Gem and it wasn't weird. And I think it's because the music was so much fun, coupled with the fashion that you're seeing in the animation. The music is probably one of the crazier elements to this ambitious project, because if you've seen it, every episode not only had one music video in it, it had multiple music videos in it, and they were cut like an MTV music video, because that's yeah. what they were trying to mimic, which was not being done at all anywhere at the time, yeah, especially so not cool. in a cartoon. 
So you'd have this story running like a normal episode, but then you would get these music videos cut in. With like the title in white uh, in the lower corner. The the the, artist's name, the song. It was really amazing. I remember the first time I watched this thinking, how crazy to try and create that much music for every single episode. The amount of work they had to put in for three seasons was unbelievable. I can't imagine. In total, once all three seasons were finished... There were 187 music videos created. Oh my gosh. With 151 of those being totally original, unique songs. Wow. And they were, they were all short songs, though. They're, it's not like a three-minute song. Some but- of them, yeah. I mean, they're, but they're, they're quick, but they're fully developed songs. Yes. And they're mainly Gem and the Holograms and the Misfits. But like you said, at the end, the Stingers start to get their own music videos and mm-hmm. stuff, too. The music was the product of a composer named Anne Bryant, which I love. It was a female composer, which is mm-hmm. cool, too. And her former assistant, Ford Kinder. So Anne Bryant is this seasoned composer. She had a really successful business, not only doing music for other shows, but she was a jingle writer, like a professional one. Yeah. Full-time job. She had an MFA in classical composition and a PhD in music. So she was a big deal. So she has no chill still about is. music. Yeah, she still is a big deal. And then... The two of them took, they agreed to take on this colossal task yeah. of doing the, the music. Keep in mind, this is while maintaining her full-time job as a jingle writer. So Jeez. she, I didn't, I remember coming across this in an interview that I read with her is that she said there were two years of her life where she didn't get a single day off between her two full-time jobs of Gem oh. and, and the jingle writing. So... I mean, it was probably good money and, and steady work, but yeah. I can't imagine trying to keep this up. The lyrics for all of Jem's songs and, and the Misfits songs weren't done by them, though. They were done by a guy named Barry Harmon, who would take into account the storylines of every single episode and then write lyrics around those stories. So that's another cool thing about Jem is that the musical numbers push the story forward. Yeah, they explain things. It's amazing. Yeah, it's not like Brilliant. it's just random music cut into it. So Anne and Ford were the co-writers. So they're the ones that are responsible. They would both write, this blew me away. They would both write a demo for each song and then come together and decide which one was the stronger one to go ahead and go forward Whoa. for every single song. Yikes. So Ford would like, he would sit down and play piano and sing, create this demo, and then they would they would think it through. And then once they decided what they were going to do, that's when they would start to, to develop the compositions for each song. I know that Ford ended up writing more of the Misfits songs oh. and Anne started writing more of Gem songs, but they both did write for both. It's just okay. that it kind of started to lead more heavily on one that or the other. That makes sense because they kind of have distinctive voices, not just the sound of their voice, but the sound of their music. Yeah, the styles. And then for the lead singers of all three bands, Anne was actually the one who cast all three singers. Oh. So Ellen Burnfield played Pizzazz, who was actually already a friend. They knew each other from like the jingle days and stuff yeah. like that and knew she was this powerhouse, could pull it off. This other person named Gordon Grody was Riot of the Stingers. Mm-hmm. And then we get our star singer, Britta Phillips, who was Jem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Agony. That's not, that's not the real me. 
let's stop on Britta Phillips because yeah. what a what a job to get. She was born in 1963 in Michigan, but raised in Pennsylvania. And her father was a professional musician, mm-hmm. of course. He was even the music teacher for Paul Simon. <laughs> that was interesting. Weird. She moved to New York City to pursue music at age 19. So she went to the big city. She was going to be a star. But in 1985, her father, who was working with all these people anyway, and I think he was involved with these production companies too somehow, yeah. got word that a new show was being developed and they needed this up-and-coming star to be the lead singer. Right. So he pulled his strings and connections in the music industry and got his daughter uh, an audition, which is really sweet. Good for her that she had that ability. But she walked in there and auditioned. And as the story goes, and this is a true story, her demo for Gem and the Holograms was so incredible that not only was she hired on the spot, her demo track is the song, the lead theme song for Gem and the Holograms. That's how good it was. Yeah, it's really cool. Now that they had all three singers established, Anne and Ford only got two days a week in the studio booked to do all the songs for every episode. It gets even crazier. And I think why I take particular interest is because I'm a film composer. Mm -hmm. And this is just beyond comprehension. Because not only were they having to write all the music, the music, this is where people thought it was all synth stuff. It's not. These are all live bands that are also being given the music to produce in the studio. Britta's own father, Peter Phillips, was the piano player. Steve Bill played guitar. Tom Barney on bass. Tom Olawaski was on drums. In addition, there were full full horns, strings, everything. Live musicians to perform all the music for Gem and the Holograms. And then a very distinctive difference to separate the Misfits was all of their music was done as electronic musicians, so they'd have more an edgy sound. Yeah. There was some guitar, yeah. and there was later on another live instrument added to the Misfits. Oh, yeah. The saxophone. <laughs> anyway, that was the musical contributions for Gem and the Holograms every single episode for three seasons. Oh my gosh. I mean, I have to say like hats off to those two because that's a bonkers amount of work. But yeah, that's a like un- unthinkable schedule to maintain. And that's just the music. That is the vocal and the music. But there's a whole nother element that we need to get into. <laughs> Just even crazier. So now let's talk about the non-musical voice actors who are involved with Jem. So Jem herself is voiced by Samantha Newark. She plays Jem and Jerrica. Interestingly, she's a singer. <laughs> like a really successful singer. That's an interesting story. I don't know if you came across this because they asked Britta about this. Uh-huh. They said, is it weird that they didn't ask you to just do the vocal, like the normal voice? Uh-huh. And she said it was really weird, but they didn't plan this, that both of them, one doing the voice of the character and one doing the singing voice, had the same vocal range and everything. Yeah. So it was actually pretty flawless. It's super believable. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So she uh, had guest starred on Transformers. She's done the voice of Peter Pan's mother in Hook. She's had a full career. And she had a cameo in the feature film, which we will get to in a little bit. She's also a backup singer to Leonard Cohen. Oh, really? Oh, that's cool. We didn't mention, too, that Britta, also the singer, the voice of Jem for singing, also went on to have a very great Mm -hmm. musical career. She was more kind of... uh, 
like an indie hipster dream pop kind of musician yeah. and, and had her own bands and stuff, too. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And so Samantha has also been involved with movie soundtracks and TV shows like Smallville, Gossip Girl, The Ellen Show, and The Kardashian Franchise. So they're all doing okay. Yeah. And she has done my dream of reading books for a living. Oh, really? She does the audiobook? <laughs> yeah. And somebody hook up Mariah if you're working on a, on a I, book I right now. I don't have the right voice for it, but I wish that I did. That's true. Okay. <laughs> well, we can all dream. So the speaking voice for Pizzazz was done by a woman named Patricia Alice Albrecht, who actually passed away almost a year ago on, on Christmas Day in 2019. Oh. She was in Remington Steel, so she was an actual actress as well. She did Midnight Madness and then began uh, to transition to a voice acting career. And after Jim, she had roles in The Snorks. Oh, whoa, I totally forgot about that. Yeah. And my personal favorite, I recognized her even at the time she was in the New Kids on the Block uh, cartoon series. <laughs> Whoa, wait, when did that come out? Was that I, 90s? No, I think that was late 80s, but I recognized Uh-oh. her voice right away when I watched it. I was like, yep, that's pizzazz. What are you writing down right now on your notes? <laughs> Cover new kids cartoon. <laughs> I don't think there's that much to cover. Uh, so later in life, she actually transitioned totally to a career as a poet and lived in Nashville. In 2009, she released a fan's like fans only CD called A Touch of Pizzazz. <laughs> but cool. In the sweetest, strangest story, uh, when she passed away last year, Samantha Newark, the voice of Jem, was actually with her. Weird. They were good friends. So Samantha was with her in her home when she passed. Oh, Isn't that sweet? I don't know why it like hit an emotional chord that <laughs> Jem and Pizzazz were together at the end. Synergy. Take her away. Oh, no. So <laughs> let's continue on. The voice for Riot, not the singing voice, the um, just speaking voice, was played by Townsend Coleman, who was a successful disc jockey. He did a ton of voice acting work, but... I had to include him because he did Michelangelo from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Really? Yeah. In the in the cartoon or the movie? The cartoon. Okay, so the voice for Rio was done by Michael Sheehan, who did uh, the Mogwai and Gremlins. Oh, wow. And he was in Transformers, Zoobly Zoo as Builder Beaver, if you, if you happen <laughs> to watch that. And then he did the new Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo. So a lot of these voices you're hearing over and over. And finally, just one last. It's one person, two voices. She did the singing voice, actually, for Minx and Rapture uh, from The Stingers. Her name is Vicki Sue Robinson. And you would know her from the 1970s hit Turn the Beat Around, <laughs> later covered by Gloria Estefan. She had an absolutely prolific musical career. She died very young, but she worked with everyone from Michael Bolton to Cher. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of a little rundown. There are so many voice actors in here who had enormous or continue to have enormous careers. So that's the other thing, you know, that we could discuss real quick, too, is that another part of the success of Jam was not only that it was just a brand new, exciting idea that was very contemporary of the times, Mm -hmm. but the talent was there. The animation was top notch. The writing was top notch. And then the acting, both the the just normal character acting and the singing mm-hmm. apart from Britta being just a lucky find everybody else was really established mm-hmm. and and went on to to have big careers too so Absolutely. i think it would just everything happened to work in the right way yeah 
Well, I will say that we're both big fans of the cartoon. Yeah. I love it. But we do have all the dolls. We, we have Gem and the Hol- We don't have all the misfits. No. Or the stingers. But we do have all of the holograms and Rio, which is funny. Yes. With his purple hair. We have the dolls. And why I mention that is because keep in mind, as we've been going down this journey, the whole point of this cartoon was just to sell dolls. Yep. Even though the cartoon came out earlier and became a mega hit, probably bigger than everybody was expecting. Probably. It was all about selling dolls. In particular, the whole point was to try and challenge and give some sort of shake up the industry to Barbie. Right. Which could not be touched. Even up to this point, nobody was taken down Barbie. Couldn't even kind of. But if anybody could do it, possibly it could be the gem doll lineup. (laughs) (laughs) There's one problem, though. Right before Gem and the Holograms hit the shelves, after all this year of developing, the, all the dolls were done, the cartoon was a huge success, they were right about to hit the shelves, one month before Gem and the Holograms went into the toy stores, Barbie releases Barbie and the Rockers out of nowhere. Hot eyes, red hair. I think that there was somebody like dressed like where in the world is Carmen San Diego went in like saw what's happening in the gem production line and ran back and reported to Barbie and they put a rush on it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Let's find out in this week's fun fact. Ooh. <laughs> Barbie and the Rockers came out, and then immediately following was Gem and the Holograms. But because Barbie hit the shelves first, in the eyes of consumers, Gem was ripping off Barbie and the Rockers. No. Yeah, because Barbie was the powerhouse. The fact that Hasbro was on the verge of unveiling a massive new doll that was going to probably be a big success Mm -hmm. was not going to be an easy secret to keep. No. And the coincidence of these two rocker franchises coming out, hitting the shelves where Barbie had never done anything like this, and just so happened to come out, and then one month later, Gem and the Holograms, led to many people in the industry questioning Mm -hmm. what the story was here. I read, I found a New York Times article from 1986 that dove into this, and they interviewed Mattel, and they asked the executives at Mattel, like, Did you rip them off? Did you spy and rip them off? And they absolutely denied everything. They said, of course not. There's no way we could have known that was happening. And even so, we're Barbie. Why would we develop an entire franchise on rumors or speculation? Mm -hmm. And they put it to bed right then and there. And that was the end of the story. Until? Until? I want to say, though, from my firsthand experience as a little girl, I remember this. I remember Barbie and the Rockers. I remember the Gem and the Holograms dolls. I My parents were pretty poor at the time, so I only wanted Gem. I did not care about Barbie and the Rockers. My cousin got both, and when we would hang out, 
Both of us thought Barbie was definitely secondary to Jen. <laughs> so she would make me play with her Barbie ones because she got Jen. It is really interesting to think about how they did compete. And we'll talk about how that shook out later. But those listeners right now are probably going, okay, so Barbie and the Rockers, how's that a fun fact? Because mm-hmm. we're not done with the fun oh, fact. Oh, it's going. Flash forward to just a couple years ago. Uh-huh. Mattel has kept up this whole facade of there was no way they ripped them off. 2017. Okay. A Netflix episode of the series, The Toys That Made Us, episode two was on Barbie. Mm-hmm. And in there, nonchalantly, the bomb gets dropped by Judy Shekelford, who was the former senior vice president of, toys, of Girls Toys for Mattel, Uh openly and bragged and admitted that she had sent in a sales rep, disguised or however, to spy. They couldn't discover everything, but they discovered just enough that Hasbro was developing a toy line of rocker dolls. Oh my goodness. They took it and within 16 hours had already developed Barbie and the Rockers. It gets even more crazy. Typically, the whole campaign to develop a new Barbie toy takes uh-huh. 18 months to yeah. develop. They did it in four months, completely finished, and hit the shelves a month before Jem, beat them to their own punch, denied everything, and won the war. <gasps> they won? Well, ultimately at the end, because what had happened is Jem and the holograms were huge. Yeah. Like the dolls were massively huge. Not only were they huge, they were uh, physically taller too, which is funny. They yes. were like 11 and a half inches. They were introduced in 1986, right after Barbie and the Rockers. Eight dolls at first, three playsets, 24 fashions. And then by next year, there were all these new dolls being introduced, other characters. By August of 87, already they had sold three million dolls. So they were really taking it to Barbie in a way that Barbie had never been challenged before ever. So Barbie was having to step it up too. Taking down Barbie. In addition to the toys, there were all these products. Lunchboxes, clothes, watches, posters, everything you would expect from an 80s TV show. It was all on fire. Mm -hmm. But what ended up happening is that the branding and comfort of the name Barbie ultimately won out. In addition, Mm -hmm. they took a risk by making it a different size than Barbie And parents did not want to have to buy new clothes every single time because Barbie's clothes could be swapped in and out. Jem, they would have to buy the clothes themselves. And ultimately, the sales started to dip. And it just, they couldn't keep up with Barbie, although they gave them a huge run for their money. And had Barbie and the Rockers not come out, who knows what could have happened. When all was said and done, by the end of of Jem's run, they had $21 million in sales. But they couldn't keep up, and that was the end of the toy line. Very interesting story that the whole point of Gem and the Holograms was to sell this very unique idea, and Barbie beat them to it. Well, that makes sense, though, because, you know, Gem was such a short-lived thing. It wasn't like she was going to be ongoing for decades like Barbie. So Jem had a, a number one Nielsen cartoon rating in 1987 and 88. It was the third most watched children's program with 2.5 million viewers a week, which is huge for the 80s. It was also airing all over the world, not just in the United States. The show was twice nominated for the Young Artist Award. Once was actually for Samantha's performance and then once for the uh, show as a whole. 
The series continued until 1988. It was released on VHS and had various runs throughout the 80s and into the early 90s. But in the 2000s, it was re-released because all of us Gem fans kind of aged into adulthood and began calling for it. So it was re-released and it sparked a new interest in, in Gem. Well, that's because there was actually a story there. You know, one minor addition to the whole Barbie and the Rockers fiasco that the creators of Gem and Hasbro and everybody stuck it back to them and said, well, maybe you did win out. But ultimately, we had a real character with a real story Mm -hmm. that had things to do, whereas Barbie and the Rockers was just like every other Barbie. And they ripped them publicly saying it's just another pretty outfit on, uh, you know, an airhead, basically, whereas Gem was a working woman and had a career and all that. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what kept Jem relevant over the years and made people love the story is because it was more relatable. It wasn't just a kooky character. Yeah, I agree. So like we said, it ran for three seasons, 65 episodes between October 6, 85 and May 2nd, 1988. But, you know, as we mentioned, due to the poor doll sales, they cut the cartoon, (laughs) which really hurt the feelings of everybody involved because they thought, you know, to hell with the dolls. We've got... We're doing great. We're doing great. Yeah, we've got this awesome show. Why would you cut it just because of doll sales? But it's because ultimately that was the only point of the show. Yeah. And if they're not selling dolls, there's no point of having the show. Another side note that kind of bummed me out, and I think bummed everybody out, there was never a soundtrack released for this. Yeah. 151 songs, and they never released a single vinyl record soundtrack or anything. Let's start a petition. Well, keep in mind, though, for fans of the dolls, they did come with tapes. And so if you had all the tapes, you really did have the soundtrack if you put them all together because they all came (laughs) with a couple songs each. And then the other real tragic story about the end of Gem Mm -hmm. was that since 1992, and the composer to this said that both the composers and the singers have not received any royalties since, even though under contract they're supposed to. What? So it's been in like a legal fight since then. They basically just got got written off. Whoa. Yeah, it's not really pretty because Christy Marks and all them do not own Gem. Nobody does. It's Hasbro that owns Gem. That oh, is weird. their baby. And this is very important to note because Christy said... Jem's awesome. Let's bring her back. And for years, yeah. pitched ideas of like the way they could reboot the series, mm-hmm. how they could do a movie, whatever. They never allowed her to go forward with it. They just kind of cut her out of the bummer, out of the conversation. She did fine. She went on to have a very big career. She worked on mm-hmm. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Bucky O'Hare, X Men Evolutions, the He Man reboot, a ton of other stuff, video yeah. games, comic books. So she wasn't hurting, but. Jem was her baby. I mean, she's the one that really fleshed it out. It was in 2014, one day before production was announced, that Christy Marks received word that there was going to be a live action adaptation of Jem and the Holograms, a movie, and she was not even included in the conversation. And so that stung really hard. Ladies and gentlemen, the internet sensation, Jem! Jim, we're getting reports that's the number one trending topic on Twitter. You've seen the movie. Yep. As a diehard Gem fan, what is your immediate thought and reflections on the long-awaited live-action adaptation of Gem and the Holograms? I wish I could grow more thumbs to give it more thumbs down. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's so disappointing. It was I was pretty jazzed to see it. And when I saw it, I, you know, I knew Juliette Lewis was in it. I was, I was like, cool, it's going to be cool. And no, it's so dumb, so bad. It's like a young girl. It's it, like a weak young girl. And Jem is a strong woman. So yeah. it, that alone was deeply disappointing. They stripped away everything that made it fun. And they tried to make it like a CW show. Yeah, absolutely. It just did not work in any shape or no. form. As I said, it it backfired. The fans completely, on a whole, rejected it. Yep. I'd say some of the younger people who didn't grow up were like, okay, yeah, this is cool. It looks like everything now. Yeah, it's fine, separate. Yeah, but the older fans, nope, they were not having it. It also was a massive flop at the box office. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like, uh, told you so. Maybe you should have involved the people who actually mm-hmm. were the creators of it. So it was, it was an interesting end of the story to be able to say, well, you tried and you failed. I don't know. There's probably some pleasure in there for everybody who was involved originally. Although Samantha did have a cameo in there. Oh, did she? Yeah, it was really short. And I remember realizing it at the time and it was just kind of disappointing. Like, why why would you just make her a side note? Yeah. Okay. Anyway. And we talked about how there was never a soundtrack to the original TV show Mm -hmm. for the movie as one of the little things they did to, to promote it. There was a cover album of Gem songs done by pop stars to try and to push the movie. And, you know, that went nowhere also. But 2015, when this movie came out as a backlash to like do Gem right and not let the fans down. Yeah. There was a new toy series that got rebooted by Integrity Toys. They put out, they reintroduced the Gem dolls, like really nice versions Mm -hmm. of them. Gem came out, it sold out immediately at these, you know, toy shows or whatever. And then the first little batch, every doll was selling at retail for $120 a pop, sold out instantly. And then they ended up doing 40 dolls in all, and all of them sold out. And now they're like hundreds and hundreds of dollars a piece. People loved them. They're like beloved collector's items now. The same exact year as that. Uh, IDW released a popular comic book series on Gem and Holograms. Mm-hmm. So it was like everybody just swept the movie under the rug. They're and like, we're going to give ourselves what yeah, we want. Decided to take it upon themselves to do Gem right. Mm-hmm. I would say the one other thing that's worth noting. Oh, yeah. I know what you're going to mention. Was that, you know, just like Friday the 13th, this has happened where things get stuck in in legal headaches there were fan films, and one of the fan films that came out was a short film called Truly Outrageous, which we watched. And it's, I mean, take it for what it is on the surface. It is totally just nerdy fans trying to correct the atrocity of the live action film. It's campy, but it is so fun and so delightful. It's dumb, too. They play up the idea of like underlying sexual tensions and stuff. Yeah. It's really funny. It, it's a blast because they dress and act just like the cartoon series. Mm -hmm. They do the musical numbers. So if you're bored, go on YouTube and look up Truly Outrageous, the fan film. It's a very satisfying (laughs) It is really fun. It's been really fun also to revisit it in adulthood and share it with our daughters because they both love Jen. They always, they're like little baby feminists and they they call it out and they're like, look, this has no female leads. But when we show them Jem, they're on it. Although I will say our oldest has been like, why does she even care about that boy so much? He's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but it's really fun to revisit if you haven't. And honestly, if you've never seen it, check it out. Why not? Yeah, it's fun. What else are you going to do in quarantine? Yeah. So we hope you enjoyed this look at the history of Gem and the Holograms. We're going to be doing a lot more of these in the coming year. We'll be announcing our plans for the next year of Laser Graves in upcoming episodes. But mm-hmm. we really love doing stuff like this for you guys. And we hope that you enjoy learning about this cool kind of side of pop culture in the 80s. And when we think 80s, we definitely go to Gem and the Holograms. So. Absolutely. And if you want even more 80s, you can follow us on Patreon, become a supporter, and check out some of our new stuff uh we have a new episode of rapid fire that released last week and you're gonna be dropping an episode this week yep new chill factor this week it is patreon.com slash laser graves you can check out the tier system it is dirt cheap it's like uh one fourth the cup of coffee and you get all kinds of bonus material so check that out also if you just want to listen to all of our back episodes we're anywhere and everywhere you get your podcast or Mm -hmm. you can go to lasergraves.com if you want to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram at Lasergraves. We have personal sites there that you can follow. I'm at Death at 33 RPM. I'm at Mariah Rose Wimmer. And we're coming up on the Christmas holidays, and I hope everybody is staying warm and safe and having fun. If you're bored and you have cabin fever, check out all of our friends' episodes. We post their shows in our feed on Instagram. Try and support them. We're all just trying to bring you guys some entertainment because we're all going crazy too. But hopefully this week was a fun look at the past and 80s cartoon nostalgia. So until next week, uh, have a have a great day, have a great week, and we'll see ya. Bye. Bye.